Hello, and welcome to the New England Law Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Bavan, and I'm an associate member of the Law Review. For today's episode, we will be talking about the case Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College, which is a lawsuit that was filed in 2014 against Harvard College claiming discriminatory admission practices against Asian Americans. Specifically, the plaintiffs claim that Harvard admission process violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by turning away Asian American applicants in order to save places in its freshman class for minority students. Harvard responds by stating that its admission process clearly falls within the bounds prescribed by Supreme Court jurisprudence and is designed to bring a diverse student body to campus. To better dive into these issues presented by the case, I'm joined here today by Attorney Torres. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Attorney Torres is counsel in the Educational Opportunities Project at Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. She earned her Bachelor of Arts from Harvard University, where she pursued a joint concentration in history and literature and studies of women, gender, and sexuality. She, re- she then received her Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School, during which time she worked as a student attorney with the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, where she co-led their eviction clinic and the wage and hour practice. She also worked with the Harvard Immigration Project to develop Know Your Rights workshops for Boston immigrant community. Uh, attorney Torres, it's a pleasure having you here today, and thank you for coming. To get started, who is the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, and what is their involvement in this case? Right. Uh, We are a civil rights organization that was founded in 1963 by President John F. Kennedy to leverage the resources of the private bar to combat racial discrimination for, uh, and to secure equal justice under law for all communities, but particularly communities of color, and it's a mission that remains very vital today, as much so as in 1963. And um, what is their kind of involvement in this case? In this particular case, uh, we were permitted by the court to participate as amici plus, and what that meant is that we got to submit briefs that included student declarations that the judge could consider as evidence. And then right before trial, we submitted a motion to participate because there weren't going to be any students testifying on behalf of Harvard or the plaintiffs. Uh, And the court granted that motion on October 3rd. And so we were able to present opening and closing arguments as well as present four students who testified at trial. Okay, and this was uh, on Harvard's side, correct? It was to defend a university's right to consider race and admission. So yes, on Harvard's side. Okay, and uh, so diving into this case a little bit, um, this is a civil lawsuit against Harvard, uh, but it seems to kind of involve more, uh, more than Harvard's ability to practice the admissions process that they seem fit, but could potentially be another stepping stone in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on affirmative action. 
Could you kind of describe affirmative action and why this case is so important? Yes. So the plaintiff's goal in this case was to overturn Supreme Court precedent, and they were quite explicit with that goal. Uh, Edward Bloom is a conservative legal strategist, and in a widely circulated video, he said that the purpose behind suing Harvard, and there's a um, corresponding case filed against UNC, which involves similar claims, although no uh, claim of discrimination against Asian American students, but a challenge to their race-conscious policy. And he said that the purpose behind both of the suits was to end all consideration of race and admissions. Um, and both of the complaints did include a count that explicitly asked the court to overturn prior precedent. The district court has dismissed that cl uh, claim because district courts can't overturn prior precedent. But when looking at what that precedent is, it's helpful to know that uh, universities as is can only consider race in a very narrow, limited way, and they can only do so alongside a variety of other factors. Quotas are already un unconstitutional. So the precedent dates back to the 1970s and the 1978 Bakke case, which split the court. It involved UC Davis's medical school and a white applicant sued the school because there was a set-aside program uh, for 16 seats out of the 100-person class that would go to disadvantaged minority students. Four of the justices would have said that that was constitutional um, because of the history of societal discrimination. Four of the justices said that it wasn't constitutional. And Justice Powell wrote the deciding opinion for the court where he said this particular set-aside program was not constitutional because it used quotas, but he actually referenced the Harvard plan and attached it to his opinion because it, in his mind, it was constitutional to consider race if it was considered alongside a variety of other aspects of an applicant's identity and all aspects of diversity were valued and appreciated. And so that was, kind of the governing law of the land, but led to some confusion because of the fact that mm -hmm. Justice Powell um, wrote the opinion, but it was unclear whether that was true for the majority of the, ju of, of the justices. Um, that brings us to uh, 2003 with a pair of Greta and Gratz cases. In Gratz, they struck down the college's affirmative action program because it applied predetermined points based on race, but once again upheld the law school had a affirmative action program that considered race in an individualized holistic process similar to the Harvard plan. And so in Grutter, the court said the law school's plan was constitutional because the benefits of diversity on campus are profound, and given ongoing racial inequities within our society, it remains important to consider race as part of the process. I promise I'm almost done with the history. Um, that brings us to the Fisher cases, which interestingly were also filed by Bloom, and this mm -hmm. involved UT Texas's plan. Uh, the majority of the class was actually filled with the top 10% 
um, process that didn't consider race, but a quarter of the class was filled through a holistic admissions program, much like the Harvard plan, uh, which considered race as part of an individualized holistic review where race was but a factor of a factor of a factor. And Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion for the court saying that that plan was constitutional under prior precedent. He did specify that those plans had to be analyzed under strict scrutiny, uh, or sorry, yes, had to be analyzed under strict scrutiny um, and the university needed to show that their plan was narrowly tailored to reach their goal of diversity. Okay, so um, just in summary, the Supreme Court has previously struck down both quotas and predetermined points, but it seems to allow this idea of a holistic admissions process. Um, and Harvard has defended its uh, holistic admission process by stating it individually assesses each applicant and considers a number of factors like you've uh, talked about. How is uh, Harvard's exact uh, process that they implement today different from um, what the court has already said is not okay? Based on the record, mm -hmm. I would say that their process complies with what the court has endorsed. Okay, and that is taking an individualized approach and looking at every applicant kind of um, in a totality of the circumstances almost. Yeah, so we actually submitted our four students' application files to the court. They were among the very few files of actual students that are in the record. And if you flip through the pages mm -hmm. of those files, you will see that Harvard's admissions officers considered a multitude of factors and really are considering the whole person. And many of the applications didn't reference race at all. The few that did referenced race only in a positive light and alongside every other aspect, such as socioeconomic status, geographic ties, parents' background, uh, the students' concentrations. And very importantly for this case and the arguments being made here, we had two Asian American students, one who identified as Vietnamese, one is Chinese American. Any time that their Asian American ethnicity was referenced by those involved in the Harvard process, it was always referenced in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe you mentioned earlier that you will have an expert testifying, correct? Not in the Harvard case, but as I said, there's a companion case mm -hmm. against UNC. So uh, the judge in the Harvard case only permitted us to participate as the special amicus plus status, but not full party. So we didn't participate in discovery and we couldn't present expert testimony. Mm -hmm. In the UNC case, the judge permitted our ability to participate on two important questions. Uh, one was the history of segregation across North Carolina by law, uh, and then the other was on this question of critical mass and how the court should approach that in analyzing whether or not an admission system was constitutional. So on this point of critical mass. What is critical mass and how does that kind of factor into the admissions process? So 
critical mass uh, is a tricky term that's mm -hmm. brought up a lot of questions from the justices themselves. But if you look at prior case law, Grutter talked about how critical mass needs to be understood in context. It's a sufficient number of students of color that also result in an environment that allows the university to achieve the benefits of diversity. So it's thinking about both numbers and context because you're thinking about the goals. And those goals include things like uh, enriching classroom dialogue, but they also include things like reducing alienation and tokenization among students of color. So you're thinking about the number of students and the environment that students need for meaningful cross-racial interaction and meaningful participation across all racial groups. So our expert is discussing how critical mass may be better understood using the term dynamic diversity, because that term encompasses this idea of both numbers and environment. It's not different from what the court has said in the past, it's just a better framework for understanding what that precedent conveys. Almost like a kind of new understanding of it and uh, a new, it's coined differently to uh, apply the new understanding. Yeah, it's a better framework mm -hmm. for discussing what these prior cases have already established. And um, so do you think from, I guess, the other side's perspective that there could be a fine line between an actual successful emissions process that implements holistic emissions standards and one that perhaps does uh, more harm than good, um, one that, if not done successfully, could actually be discriminatory? I think it's important to remember what the plaintiffs are asking for in this case. Mm -hmm. They're asking for a complete ban on any consideration of race. If there is bias in an admissions system, the social science research shows that methods should be more race conscious, not less so. So the ways to counter bias include things like trainings for admissions officers um, so that they're more reflective on their own bias or being thoughtful about recruiting admissions officers from diverse backgrounds. Those policies are race conscious to mm -hmm. counter bias and so they're, it's important to know that what this lawsuit is seeking is quite disconnected from any bias within the process. Okay. And I guess um, this kind of goes from to the, the controversy behind affirmative action. Um, I guess from 30,000 feet, each side of this lawsuit are saying that they want, um, they want equality. Um, and, uh, but they've arrived at kind of different ways of getting there. Um, so the Student for Fair Housing Missions argue that there should not be this um, holistic emissions at all. It should just be colorblind um, and no form of racial factoring. 
But on the other side, Harvard explains that we need to just adjust the scales a bit uh, to, to reach this goal because of, you know, historic discrimination. How does someone justify these two kind of competing ideas that seem to want, I guess from 30,000 feet, the same thing? Um, and which side does, you kind of talked about the empirical data, what, what side uh, does the empirical data favor? So I'll start with uh, your point about what the two sides are saying. And I think it's important to remember a race-blind process is not race-neutral. Mm-hmm. Being blind to race systematically advantages applicants who do not ascribe importance to their race. So all four of our students chose to talk about their race and ethnicity when applying to Harvard because all four felt that it was an integral aspect of understanding their strengths and potential contributions on campus. So redacting all information or references or not valuing that piece of the whole person is a systematic disadvantage to countless students of color across the country. To the second point that you, or question that you raised about the empirical data in this case, we didn't have an expert, so we didn't present uh, testimony on the data directly. But what we did do is we pointed out in our briefing that the plaintiff's method of proving their case overemphasized academic metrics in a very dangerous way. So they hyper-focused on students' academic deciles. And their argument is that the academic decile doesn't correspond with students' personal scores when you break it down by race. But there's no reason to think that the academic decile should correspond with a personal score. And that's because the academic decile is entirely based on standardized test scores and GPAs. Standardized test scores correspond most with wealth. And that also implicates racial disparities. Similarly, GPAs have a lot of problems too when we know that there are systemic biases which make Black and Latinx students less likely to be identified as gifted. They're less likely to attend schools with AP course loads. And so the way that the plaintiffs have gone about proving their case through data is flawed through its over-reliance on academic metrics and ignoring every other strength of the applicant. Harvard's expert did several regressions and he included all of the available data within the system. And we found it um, much more reliable, (laughs) in part because it considered all of the variables, including um, legacy status um, and all of the preferences that Harvard gives to um, athletes and other um, special categories. Uh, The other thing that Dr. Carr did, and he found no discrimination when he ran his regressions. The other thing that Dr. Carr did is he said, even if we get rid of the difference 
by race. What does the regression look, look like then? And he ran a second regression to check if we adjust the scores by this perceived difference by race. And by doing that, he still found no discrimination. The only way that the plaintiffs got to their result is that they entirely threw out all of the data that considers whether or not the applicant has overcome setbacks, grit, resilience, all of those data points. Okay, um, so you had, you kind of mentioned these, uh, these special uh, considerations, uh, the legacy and the um, athletic consideration. In the Student for Fair Admissions uh, argument outlined by expert witness Richard uh, Kallenberg, um, it states that Harvard has not considered available race-neutral uh, alternatives to achieve their intended goal of diversity, namely um, increasing social economic preference, increasing financial aid, and reducing these special considerations. What are your kind of thoughts on this, and do you think this is a mischaracterization, or, or, or what? I think it is a mischaracterization in the sense that Harvard is already doing a lot of work to actively recruit students of all backgrounds. They have among the most generous fi financial aid programs in the country, and they already give socioeconomic preferences in the admissions process. Um, and they've been increasing and improving in all of those ways over the years. So they've been increasing the number of um, students on campus from low socioeconomic backgrounds. They've been increasing the number of students uh, who are first generation, and they've been increasing the amount of aid that they're giving to, to, to students. So I think it's disingenuous to say that uh, Harvard could achieve the same levels of racial diversity solely by doing more when they're already doing mm -hmm. so much, and it's um, questionable whether or not that there are more steps that they could take to reach the same levels of racial diversity that race-conscious admission provides for. And one thing to know is that even under all of the race-neutral alternatives um, that Kallenberg put forth, the number of African-American students on campus dropped by a third, and all of our students said that that was not acceptable. Um, the one point I would say is that just because the number drops by one third, that doesn't mean that students are getting in because of their race and only because of their race. Uh, if you changed any factor within the admissions process, it would impact the overall class. So if Harvard stopped considering geographic diversity, it would mean there, there might be fewer students from Kansas mm -hmm. getting in. But we know students from Kansas <laughs> don't get in only because they're from Kansas, but because exactly. they're also exceptional applicants. And uh, so what is the current status of the lawsuit? And if someone wanted to read more about it, what would be the best way to do so? Great. Uh, so we had closing arguments in February of this year. We're currently awaiting the district court's decision for the Harvard case. Uh, and once that comes down, uh, it's likely that the 
a party will appeal it. I, I, for the UNC case, the parties are in the midst of motions for summary judgment right, to try to decide the case on the papers by themselves. Presuming that it's not resolved based on the papers and argument, uh, the UNC district court will schedule a trial probably in the summer or fall. And um, is there anything else that you would like to add? I would add that uh, we see these current lawsuits as a serious threat to diversity on college campuses across the country. We think that it's a part of a concerted effort uh, to attack the tools that we have, <laughs> and there aren't very many, um, to ensure greater equity and access for students of all backgrounds so that we can also have leaders of all backgrounds mm -hmm. um, and leaders who are informed about the needs of communities um, across the country. And well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it was great talking to you today. Again, this is uh, Attorney Genevieve Torres, who is a counsel for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. Thank you. Thank you.